As you're taking your seat, you can go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2. Um, as you're getting yourself situated, I just wanted to remind you of something that um, maybe you're inclined to forget. Uh, you are being watched. Uh, not, not by God. Yes, that is true. Uh, but not just by God. You are being uh, watched um, on a lot of different fronts. Um, just consider one little geographic area in lower Manhattan. According to the New York Times, um, there are 9,000 plus camera feeds just in that one area. That's 9,000 cameras watching people in a very concentrated area at one given time. Um, in a city uh, like London, it is now estimated that there are so many cameras that there is nowhere to be in London outdoors or in any commercial or professional space where you are not constantly being monitored and recorded by a camera. If some of you were paranoid before, you will certainly leave here paranoid. Um, they can zoom in on your life. They can zoom in on your face and recognize who you are. They can pull up data likely on you in an instant. And by the way, there are plenty of moral questions that this raises, and I understand that. That's not my goal this morning. There's a more important spiritual question, though, that needs to be asked. In light of this reality, Here's the question that we ought to be asking. If our lives are under a microscope, if our lives are underneath a magnifying glass, what exactly are people seeing in our lives? What do they see when they look at us? What do they see when they look closely and they begin to inspect the way we're living our lives? That's the question, really, that Peter and the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, wants us to ask of ourselves this morning. When people look at our lives, what do they see? Peter is beginning to get into the specific spheres of our lives that can either magnify or amplify of God's grace in our lives or minimize God's grace in our lives. In other words, like we saw last week, the way we live our lives has the potential to magnify the message that we proclaim, the message of the gospel, or to minimize the message of the gospel. Peter is very clear in the word of God that we are to be proclaimers of this gospel, but he wants us to understand that whatever we proclaim with our mouth must be backed up by the life we now live. Our lives must validate the message, give credibility to the message. And there are certain spheres of our lives that actually give us greater potential to put the gospel on display. Peter's going to get into those in the next um, handful of sections in First Peter here, but one of the first things he starts off with is by calling our attention to how we respond to the government, the governmental authorities that we are subject to, that are over us. And he teaches us here, teaches the church to think clearly about what kind of response we should have to our earthly rulers, especially before a watching world. The world is zooming in. They're looking closely at our lives. We see this increasing more and more. They're looking for every little infraction. They're looking for every opportunity to slander us, especially those of us who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every opportunity to point out inconsistencies in the way we're living. Every opportunity, listen, to reject the message we proclaim. They're looking for ways to say, see, see, there's why I shouldn't believe what you believe. 
So Peter calls us to focus on certain areas of our lives. Here's what he says. Read with me at verse 13. He says this, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Here's what we're getting at, and really this is what we're getting at, not just this morning, but over the next few messages in 1 Peter. It's this idea that my message is magnified by how I operate or respond in certain situations and spheres of my life. And here what we see this is this, that my message is magnified by how I respond to my rulers. My message is magnified by how I respond to my rulers. Conversely, my message is minimized by how I respond to my rulers. But the point of Peter should be clear, there is a calling on our lives as followers of Jesus Christ to respond rightly to the rulers that are over us in an earthly sense. And Peter wants to help us do that. He knows that it's challenging, it's difficult, and so he tells us exactly how we can respond rightly to our rulers, and he gives us five things to embrace in order to do this effectively. So here's what we see, that I respond rightly to my rulers when I embrace, first, this, the requirement of Christians. He calls us to embrace this simple requirement, and, and in a word, here's what it is, submission. Submission is what he calls Christians to embrace. Just notice in verse 13, it's right out the gate. It's front and center. It's so hard to miss, and yet it's so easy to avoid. He says, be subject. This little phrase, be subject, it really governs this entire paragraph that extends all the way down um, in chapter 3 to verse 7. It's Peter's primary concern right now for living the Christian life. In essence, what Peter is saying is that submission actually defines Christian behavior because being like Christ describes the Christian's goal. Let me say that again. It's so important to grasp. Submission defines Christian behavior because being like Christ describes the Christian's goal. So in other words, he says, listen, if you are going to be like Christ, you must be someone who learns submission. You must learn what it is to submit to authorities, even if and when it's hard. The one we are to imitate stands at the center of it all. And Peter's going to draw our, our focus onto Christ in the heart of this passage. In fact, let's just quickly look down at verse 21. I want you to see, we're not going to go in depth on this today, but I want you to see how really everything Peter says centers around imitating Jesus Christ. He says, for to you this, for, sorry, to you this, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten 
but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Again, he places Christ as the model, as the example for how we're supposed to live in this life, how we're supposed to suffer well, and how we're supposed to submit in the midst of suffering. Now, this is not a call um, to blind adherence um, to a rigid principle. We're not just called simply just to submit um, as simply an act of duty. It is a requirement, yes, but you need to see that it's a requirement of loving obedience to a perfect Savior. Our submission is is wide-ranging here. He describes it here in regards to every human institution. Did you notice that? He he really doesn't leave any stone unturned. He, He throws the net wide. He casts it wide. And he says, your submission is supposed to be all encompassing, in a sense, to every human institution. God has given a hierarchical institutions and structures that are embedded in our world. They're there not by mistake, not by accident, but by the divine plan of God. And so he calls us to recognize that and to submit to it. And he goes on to describe more specifically the human institution of government. Notice what he says there. He says, whether it be the emperor as supreme, um, that word can be translated as the king. You could say whoever is in charge in whatever capacity they are in charge Or, he says in verse 14, to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. He says that we are to submit to the ruling authorities over us. Now, interestingly, Peter actually uses um, a word here that it's difficult to to see. You see the, the, the word there, human institution? In the original language, the word for institution is actually the word creature. In other words, he says, you need to submit to every human creature. And you say, well, why, why would he say that? Why would he want to um, kind of use that kind of language to describe how we're supposed to submit to people? Well, it's both contextually and theologically important to understand what Peter is doing here. You see, at the time that Peter is writing, there was a, a Roman emperor And there was what was called um, emperor worship that was taking place. It was a religious cult of the time. Emperor worship was something that was commonplace. It was actually something that was expected. If you were a Roman citizen, you looked at the emperor as being someone who is supreme in the sense of being deity. He was not just human. He was God. And while he was the supreme ruler of the nation... He was not to be deified. That's what Peter is getting at here. You see, he is is not the creator. He is not the supreme being in the universe. He is merely a creature. And while there needs to be a distinction between creator and creature, we need to see what he's doing. He's saying this, listen, he is never to be worshiped because he is only a creature, but listen, he must still be honored. And so Peter is taking a shot at this cult of emperor worship while at the same time upholding the structure that God has built into a healthy and thriving society. He's saying we we need to submit 
to the human rulers over us. Now, Peter, by the way, wasn't ignorant to the evils of human government and rulers. It's more than likely at this time that the, the governor, the emperor, excuse me, of Rome was Nero. This is before, likely, uh, the, the terrors and the persecutions that were brought on the church, but nonetheless, Nero was a deadly and devastating emperor. He was not one who thought highly of Christians. In fact, we know that Peter would be um, crucified, as church history says, upside down under the reign of Nero. Peter was very familiar with what had happened to Jesus Christ. He knew of unjust rulers like Pontius Pilate who had just handed Jesus over in a corrupt way. Peter knew what Paul was facing as he went through um, the governmental structures, as he stood before Felix and as he dealt with the injustice of the system that was over him. And so we just need to see that Peter was not unaware of the difficulties that we face. He wasn't unaware of evil government and evil regimes. He knew that this was a reality that every one of us would face. But here's what he says. We don't submit, we don't obey because they are just, because they always do things perfectly, because they are worthy, listen, in the sense of earning our trust and obedience. He doesn't say that at all. Look at what he says. He says we need to be subject for the Lord's sake. This is the motivation that's often required when we're called to do something that's hard. It removes the excuses and the justifications, and what it is here is a recognition of God's sovereignty and supremacy over all the rulers of the earth. When Peter says we need to do this for the Lord's sake, it implies that our obedience, it ultimately serves God's greater purposes. It's a recognition that God knows what he's doing even if we don't always see it. It's a statement about how we see God, that God is the one who sets in place all civil authority, even when that authority rejects him. It brings to mind this picture of of God's people who are constantly being subject to unjust and anti-God authorities. In fact, remember what Peter has already said about these Christians. He's used this spiritual language and he's reminded them that they're actually spiritual exiles. They're spiritual sojourners. Instantly, this would have brought back uh, the memory of what God's people had gone through in the Old Testament, that they were, in fact, physical exiles. They were removed from their homeland where they would worship God and have the temple of his presence among them. They would be dragged off and they would have to live amidst a people who do not know God, who do not love God, who often oppressed them and looked down upon them. The people of God were in a literal Babylon for a season of their lives. And even there, God reminds his people that God is the one who is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 37 and 38, it says this, You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. He looks at the pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, and he says to him, he says, listen, God is the one who has set you up where you are are. God has placed you in this position of authority. God is the one who is ultimately supreme over you. In Daniel 4.17, it says this, 
At the end, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. You see, in submitting and in being subject to the governing and ruling authorities over us, what God is ultimately saying is that we're submitting to him. And by the way, submission is at the very heart of being a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, Walter Chantry says it like this. It'll be, I think, on the screen behind me. He says, Jesus will not be a savior to any man who refuses to bow to him as Lord. You see, to be saved, you must be submitted. There is no way to experience the saving grace of God without submitting your life to him. We heard that in the waters of baptism today, that the recognition that, that though he claimed God as his own, though he believed the right things intellectually, the recognition was so key that he had not submitted his life to the Lord. He had not surrendered himself to the Lord. This is at the very heart of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Our submission to the God-given societal structures, therefore, listen, becomes a testimony of our submission to the Lord God Almighty who is above them all. And in that sense, when we submit to the civil authorities over us, it brings honor and blessing to him. It makes known his greatness and his majesty. We magnify our message by glorifying our God in this way. And can I just say it like this? Listen, that means that resistance to government is ultimately rebellion against God. How fitting is this in our political climate? <laughs> And some of you are like, I don't like this very much. (laughs) But I I just need you to see that here, the the concern is how we respond, even, listen, even to governments that we don't enjoy, even to governments and and authorities we don't appreciate. You know what's fascinating? What we're going to see here is that Peter is actually going to deal with this idea of submission in three different contexts. He's going to deal first in verse 17 there with our subjection and submission to the government. And then I want you to drop down to verse 18. He's going to talk about being subject right there to your masters with all respect. So servants and masters, he's going to look at your work life. He's going to look at those who are in authority over you. And he's going to bring them in the same idea of submission. And then he's going to go into marriage in chapter 3. Likewise, wives, be subject to your husbands. You see, this theme of being subject is what he's using to tie together how we display the gospel in our lives. And here's what I want you to see. This is so, so important. It's fascinating. In every one of these different spheres of life in these contexts, you want to know who his primary focus is on? Not the ones who are in authority, but the ones who are most likely to be abused and suffer unjustly by those who are in authority. He's not going to go into detail about how those who are in authority ought to operate. He's going into detail speaking to how those who are suffering sometimes underneath authority, how we ought to respond regardless of how we're treated and how that so powerfully displays the gospel because, listen, we're acting just like Jesus did. So see this first, the requirement of the Christian. Secondly, notice this, I respond rightly to my rulers when I embrace the role of government. He is going to tell us um, the role of government, and he's going to get into some specifics for us in verse 14. He says, 
these words, he says, or to governors as sent by him, notice this, twofold kind of aspect to what government is supposed to do. A righteous government does this often, but even unjust governments do this to a degree. They are to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Here we have um, one of the most simplest understandings of how government is supposed to operate. They have this dual function of praising and punishing. Government, in other words, is a gift from God. Paul wants to see again that God is not only over government, but government is actually his good uh, idea and good plan for the thriving of culture and humanity. Even, listen, even ungodly governments are a form of common grace to humanity to help restrain evil in the world and protect even people who don't know and love God. According to the Bible, by the way, what we see here is that the primary purpose of the criminal justice system is not reform, but retribution. We see here that they are called to punish those who do evil. This is historically what jails have been used for in the time of Jesus Christ, in the time of Paul, the Apostle Paul. Jails um, were not there for a restorative purpose. They were there to hold people who were on trial and were facing a jury, many who were facing execution. They were held as a debtor oftentimes. They They would be held as punishment in a prison until their family members were able to pay off their debt. It was a consequence for behavior a punishment enacted upon them. The government, the word of God tells us, even has the power to bear the sword, meaning capital punishment. Paul, he highlights uh, in maybe some more detail what Peter says here in Romans chapter 13, one through seven. I'll put it on the screen just so you can see, Um, but it's an important section in understanding government. Here's what he says. He says this, let every person be subject, there it is again, to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Don't you love that segue? For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all who is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. You see what he's getting at here? We need to understand that God actually does have a good plan in government. It doesn't always appear this way. I understand that. But God in his kindness has given this structure for a reason. Even the most oppressive governments hold evil in check to some extent, preventing society from collapsing into complete anarchy. The second aspect of government is seen in this, that they are to praise those who do good. The government has something to gain in good citizens. 
The promotion and welfare of society is of utmost important to most governments, to many governments, certainly not all. But the Romans in the ancient world would actually praise and promote people who did good, who, who functioned as good citizens for the welfare of society. Oftentimes they would set up statues in honor of people, or they would grant them unique privileges or simply commend them in other ways, um, those who helped the community. In the history of our own country, our government has afforded privileges to even the church. The church has been recognized as a charitable institution. We're given tax breaks. Don't hold out uh, for that for too much longer. But, but the government, you see, has always looked upon institutions that benefit the society. At one point, the, the government looked at the church and said, you know what? Churches are good. Churches are promoting uh, good morals and good values, and they're strengthening society. Uh, they're helping keep evil at bay. There's so much good. So we're going to actually honor them by giving them tax breaks, incentives to actually be there and be present. They, they praise those who do right. Doing right here means that Christians, listen, not only obey the law, they go above and beyond. They are good citizens in every way. It means we choose to do what is honorable, not just um, in the eyes of believers, but in the eyes of the world. Again, let me just make this clear. Peter is not implying that governments always do this well. He's not suggesting that there's no corruption or ill motives involved in government. The persecution of believers in First Peter actually indicates that rulers may actually be involved in the oppression of believers. Again, there's certainly a prophetic sense here. You can hear, this is so fascinating, you can almost hear Peter preparing the church. He's like, things aren't that bad. Things aren't that bad. In a few short years, Nero would bring about his reign of terror upon the church of Jesus Christ, where he would burn Rome to the ground and he would put the blame on Christians. A statewide persecution of believers would become the norm. And so Peter, he knows, he knows what he's talking about here, and he knows what he's calling Christians to understand. He knows that governments don't always function the way they ought to. But his point is, is so powerful and so clear. Regardless of how the government responds or acts, Christians, listen, we magnify our message by being good citizens, by doing good in the culture and in the society that God has placed us and called us to here and now. You know, maybe you get recognized for that. Maybe they name a street or a park after you. Praise God. Maybe they don't. Praise God. We're not living for the praise of government. We're living for the praise of our God. And God has called us to embrace the role of government so that we might better and more rightly respond to our rulers, that we might magnify our message to the watching world. You say, how can I do this? Because let's face it, sometimes it's hard. It's incredibly hard. I have two ways in which you can do this better or at least help yourself do this better. Here's the first one, guard your heart. Guard your heart. We're so inclined to think negatively all the time, oh government. I think all the messaging that we hear is so often so negative, it's so damaging. 
Guard your heart. Here's what I mean by that. Guard your heart. Don't place your hope in government, okay? Don't place your hope in politicians. Don't place your hope in politics. That This is not where our ultimate hope is. There is so much good there. We can be thankful for this. We can participate in this. We should vote. Some of you should get involved in politics. I'm all for that. But we dare not put our hope there. Let us put our hope in God who is above it all. Amen? Like, this is what I mean. We've got to guard our hearts by putting our hope in the right place. We trust in God, not in government. At the end of the day, we believe God is sovereign. We believe God is supreme. And while we honor the government for what they are, we do not trust them to play the role of God in our lives. Here's something that we ought to do more frequently than we do, especially living our culture. Thank God for government. You want to guard your heart? Stop being overly critical of government. Start thanking God for government. Thank God not just for the concept of government, although you should. Thank God for the specific government that we get to live under. Do you realize we are living in unprecedented times? To live in a democracy, to have a say who goes into office, is a unique privilege that the vast majority of people in human history have never had. It's a privilege. We ought to be incredibly thankful. Let me give you uh, a second way so you can guard your heart. That's the first way in which you can help yourself do this. Here's here's the other one. Guard your heart. Secondly, watch your mouth. Um, You actually have to stop complaining and criticizing all the time. I'm not saying you can't have discussions. I'm not saying you can't be frustrated with things. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am trying to guard you and my own heart against is sinfully critiquing and criticizing and complaining, constantly nagging and haranguing about what our government is and what they're doing. Again, I'm not saying you can't have opinions on things. You certainly can. My fear is that many Christians move away from thankfulness and into complaining very quickly. Here's something that's really hard sometimes in our culture. Refuse to slander and malign people who are in positions of authority over us, regardless of what they do. Be careful you are not attacking the individual who is made in the image of God. Let me give you another way to watch your mouth. Um, Start praying. Use your mouth to pray for those who are in positions of authority. You know the Bible actually calls us to do this in 1 Timothy chapter 2? Or to pray for those who are in authority over us so that we may live a peaceful and godly. He said, what should I pray? Pray for their salvation. Pray that they would govern well. Pray that they would be just... We need to embrace the role of government. Thirdly, notice this, we need to embrace the rationale of God. Again, he's leading us down this path of responding rightly to our rulers, and so he wants us to not blindly follow. He wants us to understand the rationale that God has built into this. He says, for this is the will of God. Here's the reason. This is the will of God. What exactly is the will of God? To, 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 be sub, to do good. What, what is it to do good? To be in submission to the authorities over you. You see, he's tying this all together for us. It's the will of God that by doing good, here's the byproduct, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. It's like it's God's will that you submit to the authorities over you, and in doing so, you are doing good, and that good is actually going to result in an effect upon their lives. 
Here Peter picks up on the, the theme of doing good again. Again, we just saw this in the previous, sec, the previous verse where the government praises those who are doing good. And he says, listen, you should be those people. And as we saw last week, doing good works is indeed the will of God. Hear this loud and clear. The Bible does not use this terminology often. This is the will of God. It's used so infrequently in the New Testament. Whenever you hear it, you ought to perk up and pay attention. And here Peter looks at us, and he looks at the church, knowing that they are suffering, knowing that the government over them is unjust in many ways, and he says, this is the will of God for you. Your submission your willingness to obey. It's God's will that we would do good here in this time and in this place. You know, and I fear that we're so often missing this idea in a societal sense. As Christians, I think we are oftentimes becoming so fearful of our society and our culture, and we're watching politics, and it's, and it's kind of increasing our paranoia and our fear, and rather than engaging in our culture and society, more and more Christians are retreating from society, responding in fear. Listen, we, we know that times are changing. It's impossible to argue against that. But I, I just I want to put this in perspective. It is still easier and more respectable to be a Christian today than it was in the first century when Peter was writing. And even if it gets worse, our calling doesn't change. Believers should do what is right and strengthen the social fabric of our cultures and communities. That's what we're called to. If we are commended by our rulers for doing so, again, let me say it, praise God. If we are not, praise God. Many Christians, they they look at the moral erosion of culture, they look at the the values that seem to be fading away on a rapid pace. And many of us, we we really want to fully retreat from this. In the 6th century, there was a man by the name of Gregory Benedict. He was entering into Rome. And he had the desire uh, for education and training. He wanted a cultural experience. Coming from a small town, he entered into Rome and he saw uh, the political corruption. He saw the the sin and the immorality, the filth of the culture that surrounded him. And it, it, it so caught him off guard. He was so distraught that he decided to isolate himself. He he left Rome and he isolated himself in a cave for three years. He ended up forming a monastery, a uh, division of monks known as the Benedictine monks who are still around to this very day, who isolate themselves completely from culture living in in a little bubble, fully separate from the world around them, creating their own little world. While this is extreme, and, and I know most Christians aren't anywhere near that, we must allow God's word to direct us when it comes to how we engage the culture. And the call upon us is not to retreat from culture, but actually to engage in culture. I want you to notice what it doesn't say here. Um, It doesn't say do nothing. It says do good. And we cannot do good for for, for our society if we refuse to engage in our society. 
if I could put it like this, I'll put it up on the screen behind me with this illustration fresh in your mind. Listen, we are not called to the life of a Benedictine monk, but to the life of a bold missionary. And I'm not calling here for a cultural assimilation. I'm not saying we need to go out and be like the world. Please don't hear that in any way, shape, or form. You've been around here long enough, you know that's exactly the opposite of what I'm saying. I'm not calling for cultural assimilation. I'm calling for cultural infiltration. God has sent us out on mission. God has called us to have a sanctifying effect on the world around us. God has called us to be salt and light. We're supposed to have a preservative effect. We're supposed to have an illuminating effect. We're supposed to show people what it looks like to bow the knee to King Jesus. And they can't see it if we refuse to be around them or with them. And this is not new, by the way. This paradigm is established by God for us in the Old Testament. God establishes this paradigm through the very nation of Israel, the people who Peter links us with and says, they are you and you are them. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And he's calling us to look back on how the people of God operated when they were in exile. He's giving us freedom and permission to go back and say, what did they do? How did they operate? How did they live? And what can I learn from their experience? And while Israel were exiles in Babylon, it's fascinating what God says to them through the mouth of Jeremiah. Jeremiah the prophet said this in Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. You see, what God is calling his people to do is not build a bunker to retreat from the world, but build a bridge to reach the world. We have to be those who are in this world doing good so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. Throughout the ages, Christians have done more good for the culture and society than any other organization or institution on the planet. Believers have done remarkable things to advance culture and society and to be a blessing on all peoples. Believers have built orphanages and hospitals and schools. They've dug wells. They've fought slavery and fed the poor. They've cared for the underprivileged and the disenfranchised. They have seen their God-given responsibility to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world that they live in. Not, listen, not at the expense of the gospel, but as an expression of the gospel. Loved ones, this must still be our aim. Not just at an institutional level, but as individuals. And I need to tell, I am so encouraged by how so many people in this church are beginning to think about ways in which they can seek the welfare of of the city and the society and the the country that they're in and the people that are around them. I've had four conversations in in recent weeks, uh, recent months that come directly to the top of my mind in relation to this. I had one conversation, somebody approached me asking me if we would consider as a church having people in our church church um, give shoes to underprivileged kids who live in an impoverished area because they come to school to go to gym class, but they don't have any gym shoes. 
Like, do you think the church would step up and do something like this? What should our response be, church? Yes! <laughs> you kidding me? I had another conversation with somebody who's involved in a ministry um, that is helping women who have had unplanned pregnancies choose life for them and for their child and asking, do we support this as a church? Will we stand for this as a church? Do we believe that this is important? And I hope that the response for every single follower of Jesus Christ in here is, yes, we believe that people should be engaging in this, protecting those who are not yet born and are still in the womb. I got an email from somebody who has a heart for reaching those who are coming out of broken situations, drug abuse, addiction, broken homes on the street and how much they desire to serve them and love them and come alongside them. And, and I just, I hear this and my heart says, yes, yes. I, I've talked to people in this church and people who have come and visited who have a heart for adoption and foster care and to see, listen, the body of Christ be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ in a world that so desperately needs to see the gospel lived out in action. Amen, church? Like, this is what we're called to. And so as God is moving in your heart, as God is laying things on your heart, burdening you for those around you, for those who desperately need to see Jesus, like do what God is calling you to do. Partner with those who are doing good things. Ask what more can be done. And by the way, like you say, what can I do? The, the, the list is endless. Pick up trash in your neighborhood. Get involved in community projects. Serve at a soup kitchen. Foster a child. Adopt a child. Again, honestly, the list is endless. The ways in which we can be involved in doing good for those around us as an expression and extension of the love of Jesus Christ. But we must be visibly active in doing good. That's his point. Why? 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 He tells us. We don't have to guess. Look at what it says. Look at the word of God with me. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. It sounds like he's being really mean. And he's not making a comment on their intellectual capacities. He's simply stating, listen, this is the reality of living for Christ in a fallen world. Listen. At the time Peter was writing this letter, Christians were being accused of spreading disloyalty against the government, of disrupting trade, and of all kinds of shocking practices, including cannibalism, incest, and orgies. That's what they were saying about them. The truth is, is that we are being slandered today as followers of Jesus Christ. We're being targeted in many ways. We are the unloving bigots who cannot be tolerated and church, can I just maybe say this as clearly as I can? Our words are not enough to answer the critics. Our actions must silence the attacks. That's what the word of God is saying. Our submission, not subversion, can have a silencing power. When we live out the gospel, those who malign us, those who attack us, those evildoers who want to slander us with all kinds of insults, Listen, at the end of the day, it's not going to be us shouting them down that's going to win the battle. It's going to be showing them with our lives that what they're saying is fundamentally not true because the power of the gospel has taken root in our lives and it's having a transforming effect in us and through us. That's the power of the gospel. And so he says to us to embrace this rationale of God. Look how God will use 
the power of your life to silence the critics and Lord willing to bring many to salvation as their lips are closed and their hearts are opened to the saving work of Jesus. He says next, you wanna respond rightly to your rulers then embrace the restriction of freedom. In what seems like a paradox, Paul now confronts maybe some of our tendencies and some of our, our sinful responses to an, an unjust government. He says this in verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And in this context, Peter, again, he's calling Christians not to use their blood-bought freedom as a pretext or an excuse to cover up their evil, their disobedience to the governing authorities. That's what he's getting at here. You know, maybe there are some who are inclined to say, you know what, I'm free. I have no master but Jesus. I don't have to obey the, the worldly authorities over me. I have a higher authority. I can reject the authorities of this world. I serve King Jesus. And, and the temptation to outright reject or resist the powers that be only increases as the powers that be are increasingly evil. I mean, this kind of thinking is particularly appealing when you're not being appreciated, when you're not being honored, and when you're not being respected by the government who is over you. By the way, this accusation um, was the same accusation, do you realize, leveled at Jesus Christ in the Gospels. Listen to this, Luke 23, verse 2 says this, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. The accusation against Christians is that they are subversive towards the government because of Jesus, not submissive to the government because of Jesus. And of course, this was a lie that was leveled at Jesus, and, and it is likewise going to be a lie that's leveled at us. May it never be true. And what Peter does here is he grounds our thinking again in our Christian identity. And he says, listen, you need to be living as servants of God. When it comes to exercising your freedom, here's how you, you do that well. You constantly remember that you are a servant of God. In other words, your freedom does not come without restriction. The restrictions to your freedom are governed by your relationship with your God and your king. We are servants or slaves of Christ. We submit to the authorities, not because we are first their servants, but because we are first God's servants. Martin Luther once wrote these words. He said, a Christian man is the most free Lord of all and subject to none. A Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. You see, true freedom isn't the option to do whatever we want. It's the ability to do whatever God says. I want you to, to see that, to hear that. True freedom is not this libertarian freedom where we have the freedom to do whatever we want. True biblical freedom is the ability, the supernatural God-given ability to do whatever he says. You see, the fall into sin was a rejection of true freedom. It's so ironic, isn't it? What Satan offers Adam and Eve in sin is freedom, liberation, 
You can be king. You can be autonomous. You don't need God as authority over you. And yet the moment they rebelled against God, they plunged themselves not into absolute freedom, but into absolute enslavement. They traded true freedom, the ability, listen, to do whatever God says for total enslavement to sin. They put the chains on. They didn't take them off. You see, freedom apart from God is enslavement. And enslavement to God is freedom. And this is what the Christian needs to understand about how God calls us to serve him. When we serve him, when we are obedient to him, we are actually experiencing great freedom. Why? Because we are doing what we were made to do. We're doing what ultimately brings us the greatest joy and what brings God the greatest glory. The believer is set free in coming to salvation. When we look to the cross and we believe the gospel, when we see that Jesus Christ suffered and died for sin, he took upon himself the penalty for sin. He relieved us from the power of sin. He made the total payment for our sin. And as we believe in him, the chains fall off. They're broken apart. The cell door is flung wide open. We are given true freedom away from sin and unto God. To know him, to love him, to follow him, to treasure him, to obey his every word. You see, biblical freedom is found in submission to God. And that submission is demonstrated, listen, on, by a reliance on the Holy Spirit to be in and to obey the word that he has given us. And Paul, excuse me, Peter calls us to this kind of freedom. He says, listen, your freedom is not in rejecting the government and trying to be autonomous from authority. It's actually in your submission to God. And when you're in submission to God, you can do what he calls you to do. You can suffer like Jesus suffered, even suffer injustice. And that means finally that you can do this. You can embrace the respect of all. And you want to respond rightly to your rulers, just embrace this idea that we are called to respect all people. Our freedom as servants of God helps us become servants of all. And our respect of all is actually manifested in different ways as we understand our different relationships that God has given to us. And here Peter just gives us four final exhortations. They're very simple, they're very clear, they don't take a lot of unpacking, but he's organized them in a very helpful and strategic way. Let's just quickly look at all four of these. They describe different relationships that we all face and how we're supposed to respond with respect in each of them. First, we honor all men. In other words, we're called to treat everyone with respect that they inherently deserve. And that respect isn't because of what they have earned from us. It isn't because of anything they could possibly merit. It's because of the image of God that is stamped upon every human being. They are worthy of honor and respect because they are created in the image of God. 
And when we honor them as such, we are actually honoring God. Secondly, we are to love the brothers, showing affection and offering aid to all within the family of faith. Here, he, he drives us into something that is so powerful. He says, listen, you respect all, you honor all, but there is to be a kind of respect in the body of Christ that is different. It is deeper. It is more intimate. It is more sacrificial. It is more selfless. Here is where Jesus reminds his disciples that that by this, by their love for one another, all people would know that they are his disciples. Third, we are to fear God. Our respect for God is to be demonstrated by fear, this affectionate fear, this kind of reverence and awe that every person owes to God, we know this God, and so we ought to fear him all the more. We ought to honor him and respect him and seek his glory above all things in our lives. And fourth, we are to honor the king or the emperor, the president or the prime minister. And he's structured this in such a way that helps us actually understand what is of utmost importance. The two things in the middle. So he's kind of bracketed with this idea of honor and honor. And then he gives us kind of as you're, you look at this as, a, as a, the pinnacle, he says, love the brothers and fear God. And what he's saying is this, this here, the loving the brothers and fearing God is of utmost importance. But what he wants to make clear is this, if you're doing this faithfully, you will also do these consistently. And if you do this, then you better be doing this. Because if you don't, The message you proclaim is not magnified, but minimized. You know, as Jesus lived out his life and his earthly ministry, it's interesting, he was constantly being watched and surveilled, always looking to find cracks and the religious elite especially, they hated Jesus and wanted to dismantle his reputation. And here's what it says. Just, just listen to this in Luke chapter 20, verse 19 and 26. It says this, The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Should we honor the government or not? Should we respect the government or not? Should we submit to authorities or not? But he perceived their craftiness and he said to them, show me a denarius, a coin. And he said, whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Honor those in authority. You hear Jesus saying that? Honor, 
Honor those in authority. Pay your taxes. Be a good citizen. Seek the welfare of the city. But notice what he says. Listen, this is of so much more importance this morning. He, he looks at, at them there, and, and you've got to catch what he's saying. He says, give to God what is God's. He, he looks at every person. He says, listen, you're a coin that is stamped with the very image of God. He says, the greatest thing you can do is not just submit to government, is to submit yourself fully and completely to the God who has put his very image upon you. The world is watching. What will they see? Will they be silenced because they see a life that is completely submitted to God? Church, this is the only way. Will they see a message that is magnified by our response to our rulers because they see lives that are submitted to the authority of God? Let's pray and let's hope that they do for the glory of God. Father, we pray now, thankful, Lord, for you and for your grace to us. God, we hear your calling upon our lives to be subject, to live a life in submission, and God, we, we see the call to respond rightly to the rulers that you have placed over us, to the civil, the governing authorities that have been placed over us. And Father, we, we acknowledge that this is right, this is good, this is your will for us. We see, God, your call upon our lives to be a good citizens who do good works, who seek the welfare of, of the city that we are in and the people that we get to display the gospel to. And God, we confess that we have not always been faithful in this, and yet, Lord, we believe you are faithful to us in this. That, God, you will take us and use us. God, burden our hearts in greater ways. Lord, that our lives might magnify the message of the gospel. But, God, more than anything, we pray that our lives would be in full and complete submission to you, that we would give to you what is truly yours. We would give you all of ourselves. God, humbly bowing down before you, recognizing that you are king, that you are Lord, that you are sovereign, that you are supreme, that you deserve allegiance, and that, Father, we are privileged and blessed to be able to give it to you. So, Father, would you even in a fresh way this morning receive, Lord, our humble repentance and our humble submission to you. Fill us now, Lord, with greater joy. Fill us now, Lord, with greater purpose. Fill us, Lord, that we might be sent out on mission, Lord, to live lives that bring glory to our Father who is in heaven, that all might see, that all might know, and give, give glory to him as well. Father, do this, we pray, in us. Do this through us. Do it for the glory and honor and fame of your great name. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.